You can turn over in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This morning I want to look at Zechariah and his silent faith. Luke chapter 1. And we'll be preaching a series of messages leading up to Christmas. And actually, Danny Vasquez is going to be preaching the Sunday before Christmas. Um, we're going to be out of town. We're coming back on the 23rd, so we'll be here for the Christmas Eve service. We're doing things a little different this year. So, um, But uh, we're leading up to that time of the year. How many of you are looking forward to Christmas? Hopefully everybody is. Some people are kind of, you know. Um, when will Christmas come? December 25th. You sure? Okay. Imagine if you didn't know when Christmas was going to come. Imagine that you understood that it was going to come, but you didn't know when. You didn't know what day Christmas would come on. It might be December 5th. It might be December 25th. It might be January 4th. Can you imagine in your mind, just for a second, not knowing when Christmas Day is to be celebrated? You only have the promise. You only have God's promise through His Word, through the prophets, that Christmas will come, but you don't know when. You're going to wait for it. You're probably even going to expect it. Hopefully you'll be ready for it, but you don't know the day exactly when Christmas will fall. Now imagine that went on day after day, week after week, month after month, even year after year, not knowing when that special day would come. You don't know when Christmas is coming. I know in our house house every year, the expectation of Christmas is great. And there's much involved in preparing for that special day. The last couple of years, we weren't even here for that day. We'd either leave the night before or whatever, go back with family. And so it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me that we were preparing for something we weren't even going to be here to celebrate. But that didn't sway my wife from having me bring down all the decorations from the attic. I accomplished that on Saturday. And every year, my daughter sends me a text, have you done it yet? Are you done yet? No, I'm going to do it today. And she goes, I'll be praying for you. And I said, thank you. And I heard my wife telling somebody earlier before the service began that your prayers are working because we haven't even gotten a fight yet. I mean, you don't understand. In my house, the Christmas decorations are over the top. And sometimes it just, you know, it just does one of those things in your in your brain. And, uh, you know, you, you have the idea of bringing all this stuff down, and then you realize it's only for a couple of weeks. Then you got to put all the stuff back. You know, it just kind of builds up. And so there's kind of an attention there. The house is in disarray for a period of days as all the place is made festive. I couldn't imagine getting ready for that day if I didn't know when it was going to come. On one hand, I think it would be good because I could do like Ken, just leave the lights up. He left his lights up all year. That's, hey, that's good. I could go for that. Just leave all the decorations up. We'd have no room in our house, but, you know, just leave them up year-round. That would be easy. Well, today, as we look into the Gospel of Luke, we see this marvelous account of the birth, the life, and even the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when this book begins, before we read the text, I just want to give you a little bit of background here. When this book begins, the Jews are in a similar situation as to our imaginary story, if we didn't know when Christmas would fall. Through the prophets over the years, they've been given many promises. All you have to do is look in the Old Testament, you see promise after promise after promise about a future king. He promise after promise after promise about a future Messiah, about the Son, the 
uh, of the, the king of David who will be coming, who's going to reign in righteousness. All that stuff was promised to them. In the book of Malachi, God promises to send his messenger to prepare the way. Then their Lord, their Messiah, and he will suddenly appear in the temple. He will refine the priests, enabling them to make pleasing offerings. He will also judge the rebellious, those who reject God. From Isaiah chapter 9, we read this morning, it says, God will shine his light on those walking in darkness, and he will send a, a child, an infant, a little baby, a descendant of David. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it says his kingdom will have no end. See, the Jews have been waiting for a long time for these and many other promises to be fulfilled. King David reigned about a thousand years previously to this. Isaiah prophesied about 700 years previous to this time in Luke. Malachi prophesied about 400 years previous to this. So we're talking not days, not hours, but years, folks. And from Malachi into the opening of Luke's gospel, you have to understand there was complete and utter silence. No other book has been written that will be part of Scripture during those 400 years. So God was silent. So we have hundreds of years of waiting Hundreds of years of struggles. Hundreds of years of being subject to a lot of different empires, a lot of different rulers God's people were. But no Messiah. No restored kingdom. Only long periods of oppression broken up by little short periods of freedom that was created politically for them. But see, God promised that His salvation would come. And He promised that His salvation would come exactly at the right time. Not too soon, not too late. He spoke through the prophet Habakkuk more than 600 years previously in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. It says, For the revelation awaits an appointed time. He speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, it says. It will certainly come and will not delay. The righteous will live by his faith. Habakkuk 2, 3 to 4. So God's people waited, and they waited, and they waited. And Luke tells us here in chapter 1 about the beginning of the end of that wait. Let's follow along with me as I read beginning in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And as much as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Verse 5. There was in those in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God. Notice that. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God, verse 8, in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. 
and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Incredible. I don't know how that works theologically, (laughs) but you can think about that one all night long and not figure it out. That's a God thing. Verse 16, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. Notice he was a polite husband. He said he was old. He said his wife was well advanced. Verse 19, And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and to bring to you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. It's amazing to me as we look at this this text, and we're going to jump around a little bit here in the first chapter of Zacharias, but as, as or of Luke, as we look at this text, I want you to look at two things. First of all, the time is at hand. The time is at hand. 2,000 years ago, during the reign of Herod the Great, God at at long last brought about his plan that was formulated even before the beginning of time to redeem and perfect his people for himself. See, God is not a reactionary. He doesn't react to what we do. God... You know, sometimes we have the wrong impression of what happened in the Garden of Eden. There's Adam and Eve, and boy, they're living in bliss, perfect. And then all of a sudden they sin, and God's up in heaven, and he says, Oh, no, what do I do now? I don't have a plan for this. Uh, Let's see, Jesus, we'll do this. Let's fly by the seat of our pants and come up with a plan. No, this was preordained. This was God working this out before time even began, beloved. It speaks of the sovereignty of God. We sang this morning, God is in control. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it. You look around the world, you look at what goes on around us, and sometimes you just want to shake your head and say, man, things are fast spiraling out of control. And it may seem that way to us, but God had his perfect hand steadying every situation, that it will work out according to his plan. And that's what he did here. He had a plan that was formulated before time began to redeem and perfect his people for himself. And the reason he did that is for the praise of his glorious grace. He chose for the parents of the messenger prophesied in Malachi a couple. This couple was too old to have children. It's just kind of the humor of God in this. Zechariah and Elizabeth, a godly man and woman from priestly families. They live righteously, which we just read, according to the law of God. Doesn't mean they were sinless. They weren't perfect. But when they sinned, they offered the correct, appropriate sacrifice that was ordained by God. And you can only imagine they had prayed long and hard for a child. But the child never came. Elizabeth never gave birth. And by this point, probably in the time frame of history, I expect they even probably stopped praying for a child, realizing that we're old. There's no way this is going to happen. They probably knew other couples, other godly couples who had desperately wanted a child and never had any, and they just kind of resigned themselves to the fact that God was not going to bless them that way. They were confident in God's wisdom and confident in God's goodness, and they accepted that plan for their lives. Zacharias was one of about 18,000 priests at the time, and these priests were basically among the Jews, among the people there. 
And one of the most important priestly duties or tasks was to enter the temple two times every day and burn an incense. Now, you have to remember what the temple represents. The temple represents the whole of God's presence to his people. Inside the temple was the Holy of Holies. It was the most holy place. Inside Solomon's temple, you remember, they had the Ark of the Covenant, and that represented God's presence there. And it remained in the Holy of Holies. The Ark was lost or destroyed when the Babylonians destroyed the Solomon's temple in 586. The Holy of Holies continued to represent God's presence. And so the altar was used to burn incense right outside the Holy of Holies. And it was one of the tasks that every priest desired to do. And this altar was a place of contact between God and his people. And the incense itself was a picture of the prayers of the people going up to a holy God. You can read that in Psalm 141.2, Revelation 5.8. So two times every day, the priest would go and he would burn incense right before the symbol of God's presence as the crowds of people stood outside praying. And the smoke from the burning incense represented the prayers of the people. And it kind of just lingered there and they'd go up. As the people and the representative, the priest, praised God for his power, his love, his grace, they admitted their own lack of power and they admitted their own complete dependence upon him. And you ask, well, how did they decide which priest got to do this? If it was such a special thing, what'd they do? Well, they basically, all the priests were divided into divisions, and that's what we read here this morning. And each division came by a rotation into Jerusalem at an appointed time. And they served in a variety of ways. And one of the ways that somebody in that division, one of the priests in that division would serve is he would get to burn the incense. And each day the priests would cast lots of that division to see who would be able to go up and burn those incense because it was such a special thing. And so every day they would cast a lot and, and the people that already won the, the lot and they burned the incense the day before, well, they weren't part of that. So they excluded the priests that were already, uh, that already got the, the chance to burn incense previously. And so given the number of priests, most likely each priest probably would maybe have the chance of one time in his entire lifetime of ever burning incense before the altar of God. I mean, can you imagine how many times over the years, he's an old man now, Zachariah's division had been in Jerusalem. How many times he had cast the lot and lost. Each day, Zachariah's prayer that he might be the one to have the privilege of burning incense before the Lord. They'd cast the lot and it wasn't Zachariah. And it's not Zachariah again. And it's not Zachariah again. And it paints a picture of how Zechariah was waited for a son. But you know what? He never got one. He waited to enter the holy place. He never was chosen. He waited, and he waited faithfully, silently. Finally, one day, the lot falls on this old man. And this is the high point of his life. At long last, he can represent the people before God by burning incense in the holy place. And this daily incense offering has been going on now for years and years and years. And Zechariah had never heard anybody come out and say, man, you, can you imagine what happened to me in there? I saw this light or I saw an angel. or I, Nothing like that ever happened. It wasn't some supernatural thing. It was just something that they did. They went in, they burned incense, and they left. And when angels appear in Scripture in almost every case, the response is what? Fear. See, they're not these, you know, effeminate little angels with wings and, you know, they look all... That's not what we're talking about. I don't know what angels look like. I mean, there's some descriptions, but, I mean, we can't even conceive. But whatever they look like, it's definitely a fearful sight. Not a terror, but, I mean, almost a respectful fear is what we're talking about here. The other thing is, just to let you know, whenever angels talk in the Bible, 
Some people today in the charismatic movement say, well, the gift of tongues is the gift of angels, and I, I have a, a gift of, of speaking in the tongues of angels. And that's why you don't understand it. Well, whenever I read in the Bible an angel talked, what happened? The people understood him. They didn't speak in some mumbo-jumbo, gibberish, whatever they called it. it. It was in the language of the people. So that whole scenario doesn't add up. Well, didn't Paul say in Corinthians that if I speak with the tongues of men or angels? Yeah. And if you read that context, he's obviously using hyperbole there. He's going over the top. Because he also says, I have all love, all, you know, all that stuff. He doesn't. He's using that as an illustration. But here, John or Zechariah clearly heard what the angel said. And it says that this angel was bright, mighty. It's overwhelming him. And obviously, his response is to be fearful, to be afraid. But the angel says to him, fear not, your prayer has been heard. Can you imagine that? He was probably thinking, which prayer? (laughs) And then the angel tells him, Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. I mean, aren't you glad that when you pray, when you take your request before a holy God because of Christ, your prayers are heard? I don't know about you, but that means a whole lot to me. We're not praying to, you know, a piece of wood. We're not praying to a statue. We're praying to the living God, the creator of all that we see around us. And he's there listening intently to each word that comes out of our mouths. And not only that, but we have the Holy Spirit that kind of is the go-between. He, he works intercession for us on our prayers. When we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit enables us. He says, your prayer has been heard. He offered a lot of prayers, admitting the people's weakness, asking for a deliverer. But it's probably been a long time since Zechariah prayed for a son. I bet you it was. Just physically, it was impossible at that point. But God heard those earlier prayers. And although Zechariah didn't know it, God's answer to request in a request for his son was not, no, I'm not going to give you one. His answer was not yet. See, sometimes when we go before God and we take our request to God and we pray, sometimes we want an answer right then. And it's not that God's not going to answer your prayer, but he's going to do it in his time. That is so crucial to understand that. The timing wasn't right when Zechariah obviously prayed for a son. But now the timing is right. And God is going to do something incredibly supernatural. And God will be most glorified in Elizabeth bearing a child. See, that's how God works. God waits to the most opportune time for him to get all the glory. Do you know that? See, sometimes we want everything when we want it, how we want it, and, and you, when we want it, and all that. And, and, and God is saying, no, this isn't the right time. And it's not the right time because I'm not going to get the most glory in this situation. I'm going to wait until the opportune time where I would receive the most glory. And that goes for our own situation. Sometimes we pray for certain things. Maybe you're single, you're praying for a wife. God hears that prayer. Hopefully you're not married praying to be single. That wouldn't be good. But God hears that prayer. And you know what? He's going to answer that prayer in his time. And when he does, it's going to be exactly what will give him the most glory and will help you and assist you in your own life. See, sometimes we want to get things done. We go out there and we, we work on behalf of God sometimes. And God is saying, yeah, I heard the prayer. Okay. You know, chill out on the online dating stuff. Chill out on this. You know, I got somebody special for you, but you're going to have to wait because you're not ready. We need to hear that.
So God is most glorified in Elizabeth bearing a child. Why? Because it's supernatural. It's supernatural. And the angel tells him to name his son John. Now, usually in Jewish culture, the child would be named after who? The father. It would be at least named after a relative. An only son born to a man in his old age would almost always have his father's name to continue the line. And even though John wasn't an uncommon name, Zechariah had no relatives named John. <laughs> so why name him John? Just didn't make sense. Verse 14, you see there, the angel doesn't let this fearful and puzzled man dwell on that question. <laughs> he doesn't dwell on it. He assures him. Well, look at what he says. He says, you will have joy and gladness. <laughs> he personally will rejoice in his son. And not only that, many will rejoice, it says, at his birth. See, this is the first clue that God has answered not only Zachariah's personal prayer for a son, but also the prayers represented by the incense themselves. The birth of Zachariah's son has, is, is, is one necessary step, you might say, in God fulfilling his plan to redeem his people. And the time is at hand. Now is the time. At long last, the time that seemed to linger is no longer delayed after hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of years. The angel explains there in verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord. You know, there's a lot of unknowns when a child comes into the world. There's just a lot of unknowns. But here is a promise from God himself through an angel, he will be great before the Lord. His greatness will not consist, doesn't say in human accomplishment, but in God's value of greatness. See, John is specifically and specially chosen by God before even his conception to be great before God himself. Sometimes we forget that God is involved in all this. God has a hand in this. It's kind of like when we were going through the prophecy conference a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm sitting there going, man, the wheels are falling off the cart real quick. <laughs> Lord, come quickly. <laughs> I mean, just some of the things we heard and some of the things that are going on in the world today. I mean, it can kind of be kind of scary if you don't put your faith and trust in a sovereign God. Verse 15 there says he must not drink wine or strong drink and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and go before he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn their hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. See, the Holy Spirit fills him continually. I mean, do you understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit? Do you understand that when you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit? God himself puts a deposit within you of the Holy Spirit. He comes and he lives within you. He gives you the power to live the Christian life. Don't think for a second you can do this Christian thing all by yourself. You can't. You need God. You need to depend on him every day. And so he gives us the Spirit of God to dwell within us as a deposit of our salvation. That's why you can't lose your salvation. When God puts a deposit down on something, you better believe he intends to collect. <laughs> and so he gives you this supernatural power through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so every day when you get up after you're a Christian, you need to make a decision. Are you going to live your life by the flesh? Are you going to try to flesh it out every day and, and do what God has told you to do just in the power of your own flesh? Your own desire, your own, you know, try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do the Christian thing? Or are you going to rely on God to do it through you? Through the power of the Spirit. See, when you're filled with the Spirit, it's God working through you. 
You're resigning yourself. You're, you're submitting yourself to the Spirit of God. It's not kind of, it's not some do-do-do-do-do-do-do kind of thing. You know, you don't walk around with a halo on your head when you're filled with the Spirit. You do fulfill the things of the Spirit, though. You do what God wants you to do, not what you want to do. And so the Holy Spirit continually fills him. The book of Ephesians tells us, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And that, that word there, filled with the Spirit, it's not, okay, you got saved and you're filled with the Spirit. No, you have the Spirit, but it's possible to be a Christian and not be filled by the Spirit of God. What do I mean? That word filled means to be controlled. That's why he says, don't be filled with alcohol. Don't be filled with wine. We shouldn't take things from outside and put them in our body that controls us. That's why they're called controlled substances. And when we do that, what are we doing? We're yielding our body to control over something else. And the Bible forbids that. Well, didn't Jesus drink wine? Well, yeah. But you go over there now, you can drink wine and never get drunk because it's so watered down. I mean, it's a, it's a daily drink. It's kind of like grape juice almost. It's definitely not the alcohol we have today. And so you need to stop and you need to think, okay, if I'm not to be controlled by something else, what am I supposed to be controlled by? It says the Spirit of God. Be filled continually with the Spirit of God. When you wake up in the morning, before your feet ever hit the floor, you should be saying, God, you know what? I yield control of this day to you. Help me think the thoughts that are glorifying to you. Help me do the things that are glorifying to you. And God, if I step out of line, I pray that the Spirit will convict me and draw me right back. And help me to confess that. Bill Bright put out a little book called How to Be Filled with the Spirit. And in the little book, he even talks about an exercise called spiritual breathing. Some of you may have read it. It's just a little track. And what he says is, being filled with the Spirit is kind of like breathing. When you, when you inhale, you need to inhale God's Spirit control over your life. And as soon as you take back control of your life, you're no longer under the control of the Holy Spirit. You need to exhale. You need to get rid of that stuff. You need to repent and say, God, you know, I'm in control here. I'm sorry. Holy Spirit, take control once again. Now, I don't know about you, but with me, that's almost kind of a moment-by-moment ongoing prayer in my life. Because Steve Converse wants control of his life. And so when things get out of whack, rather than stop and pray, I'll try to figure it out or try to work it out. And God taps me on the shoulder and says, who's in control here? Am I in control or you are in control? Good illustration is kind of like driving a car. If you were driving your car and I, I said, hey, hop in the back seat. Some of you would say, no, it's my car. I'm going to drive my car. No, no, just get in the back seat. Some of you, that would be hard to do. It would be hard to yield control of that vehicle, not knowing what I'm going to do with it, totally jumping in the back seat. See, that's where God wants us. He wants us in the back seat. He doesn't want us in the drivers. We're not the driver of our own fate and all this other stuff. You know, some people say, well, I got to go find myself, you know. Well, what are you, what are you talking about? You need to find God. You need to go before God and say, yeah, I've been doing my own thing and it's been leading me down the wrong path. Help me find the right path. And when you come before God and you ask him to fill you with the Spirit, to save you from your sins and to fill you with the Spirit as a result of that, he'll do that and he'll take control. That's what filling of the Spirit is. It's yielding control of your life to God. And it's a daily, ongoing thing. So he has the Spirit of God even from the mother's womb. So you can imagine what kind of ministry John must have had. Verse 17 refers to Malachi 4, 4 to 6, the last three verses in our Old Testament today. It says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
See, Elijah was the prophet, and he lived in a time of great apostasy. And at one point, Elijah thought that he was the only one left who was faithful to God in Israel. But he wasn't. God assured him that there were 7,000 others who are faithful as well. And so God used Elijah to proclaim truth and to have an impact on turning people to repentance and faithfulness to God and restoring families and restoring lives. All sorts of things happened through him. And just exactly what is going to happen with this boy, John, he'll do the same thing. He's going to prepare the people of God's, a people of God for a great work by the Messiah himself. We saw that in Matthew. John went out, behold, you know, uh, preaching the message of the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. He was preparing the way for the Messiah. See, finally, the time is at hand. The messenger will be conceived and the Messiah will come. After years and years and years and years of waiting, the long wait is over. See, I don't know how long you've been praying for something in your own personal life. I don't know how long you've been praying for that lost relative to, to come to faith. And finally, you just say, yeah, I, don't, I don't think you're ever going to get saved. Have faith. Have the kind of faith that holds on to God's promises no matter what. Because the time is at hand and it will happen as God decrees. Second thing we see here with Zechariah is that he believed the promise. The angel told Zechariah that he will have great joy. The angel told Zechariah that his people will have great joy at the birth of his son. And yet, Zechariah is a real person. See, that's what I like about the Bible. They don't paint some, some of these guys with flowery brushes and, and make them look all spiritual. He had some issues here. He really did. Look at what he says to the angel in verse 18. How shall I know this? For I am old, I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. What's he saying? You know what? Okay, you're an angel and everything. I'm a priest. I get that. But I just can't take your word for this. <laughs> this is just too impossible. It's too hard to believe, is what he's saying. Give me a sign. That's what he's implying. He's like, hey, if you, if you think I'm going to go out there and tell these people what you just told me, you're crazy. If this doesn't happen, think how embarrassed I'd be. Think how embarrassed my wife would be. See, everyone who rejects the gospel is kind of like this individual in this case. The gospel of God proclaims this. Here is the way to find true joy. Here is the way to God. The way he planned even before the beginning of time. And what do you have to do? You have to believe in the way. You have to believe in Christ. You have to put your faith, your trust in Christ for your salvation from your sins. And somehow, we think that somebody's trying to pull something over on us. And we sit there in our own self-righteousness and we say, you know what, I, I'm too, too bright for this. You know, this is a shell game. And we want proof. We're also like Zechariah when we reject God's plan for us. Jesus says, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Remember that promise? That's what he said. And yet we're afraid to step out in faith if it means maybe taking a new job somewhere or getting a lower salary or <clears throat> reaching some out publicly for Christ somewhere. Psalm 73, 24 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. He sang the song, Draw Me Close to You. I pray when you sing that song that it comes from your heart. You're not just reading words on a screen, that that's a prayer. God, draw me close to you. Keep me close to you. I mean, we, we sing that song, but then we look at all the little trinkets we collect and all our material goods, and we say, well, you know, not too close. <laughs> I don't want to leave any of this stuff behind. Please don't make me give up this stuff, God. 1 Timothy 6, 8, God says through Paul, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be what? content.
And that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing for any of us to be content when we live in a world that's so saturated with materialism. And, and you know, I mean, we just came through this Black Friday thing. You think they'd come up with a better name than Black Friday? It sounds like a murder occurred or something. It's just so weird. I was driving back to Redwood City on Thanksgiving Day, and I looked over at the Best Buy, and there's people on Thanksgiving Day, early in the morning, lined up outside the Best Buy. They're not even open yet. And I'm thinking, what, what could they possibly be in line for? I mean, are they giving away... $5,000 TVs free or something? I mean, I would probably be motivated to go down and stand in line for 24 hours if I could get a free $6,000 TV or a $5,000 TV. But I guarantee you nobody walked away with a free TV from Best Buy. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. I mean, I went out and did some shopping. Good deal. Got a good deal over at Home Depot. Shop vac, $100 shop vac. Got it for 19 bucks. That's a good deal. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. But we need to learn to be content. How can I possibly serve God without broadband internet access? I'd be lost without DSL or cable or whatever you got. I mean, we need to, you know, it's funny when we had the missionaries here, I was asking the kennels, so what do you do on the mission field when you, I mean, like for email? He's like, wow. Before, when we were out there, we didn't have it. This time, we have it within a, like a walking distance, so it won't be that bad. I said, but you did it without email for how many years? I mean, yeah. He goes, you, <laughs> I mean, we're lucky to get our mail, he said. Sometimes we have to practice that contentment. But God says to Zechariah here, here is great joy. He says, follow me. And Zechariah and all of us, basically, when we were first presented with the gospel, we stop, step back and we say, wait a minute, this is too hard to believe. Hold on. Where's the catch? Where's the hook? Look at what Gabriel's response in verse 19 to Zechariah's doubts. He says in verse 19, and the angel answered and said to him, look at what he says, I am Gabriel. Hello, do you know who I am? I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent specifically to you, Zechariah, to bring you this, hello, good news. It's not like Gabriel's delivering bad news. Gabriel says, hey, Zechariah, God sent me here. Did you notice this is good news? And the subsequent verse shows us Gabriel goes on and he says, you want a sign? Pal, I'll give you a sign. <laughs> you won't be able to speak until the prophecy comes to pass. But note, the prophecy will come to pass. The next few verses are pretty straightforward. Zacharias comes out, Zachariah comes out there of the where he's burning the incense, and he can't talk. Now, for some of you, that would be a real issue, wouldn't it? Can you imagine if you couldn't talk? This point on, no talking. You couldn't talk. Some of us would be fine with that. <laughs> but others of you, boy, you would have real issues. God says, you know what? You're not going to speak. This prophecy will come to pass, but until it does, you're not going to speak. He's unable to speak. He keeps serving with his groups of priests, but he doesn't burn incense again. He gets along by making signs and probably writing on something. And when his division's duty is done, he goes home. By God's grace, what happens? Elizabeth becomes pregnant. She praises the Lord for his favor. Look down at verse 57. It says, now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. Yesterday when we went to see Dax and Carrie, I said, well, how, how did it, you know, how did all this happen? How did it go? Well, we were at a picnic. We were having a family picnic in Menlo Park. 
and Carrie's water broke. And so she said, well, we better go. So they went home, said she took a shower and contractions were coming a little fast and furious. And her mom said, you need to go now. And on the way to the hospital, they literally thought they were going to have the baby in the car. That's how close it was. She gets to Kaiser, 10 to 15 minutes later, the baby's born. Well, Elizabeth full-time came for her to be delivered. And at this point, the neighbors and the relatives, everybody's excited. Everybody acknowledges this is a baby from the Lord. And when the baby's eight days old, the parents bring him in for circumcision. And at this point, basically in the Jewish face, that's when they name the child publicly. Well, everybody, remember, Zechariah is what? Well, he's mute. <laughs> okay, he can't say anything. Everyone expects him to be Zechariah Jr. <laughs> but Elizabeth says, no, he shall be called John, verse 60. Notice, he sa she says, he shall be called John. Future tense. You could paraphrase that and say, from now on, his name's going to be John. That's kind of what she said. Now, obviously, all the relatives, everybody gathered around, the neighbors, whatever, is like, what's wrong with the name Zachariah? <laughs> Gee, maybe Elizabeth and Zachariah got some issues or something we don't know about. <laughs> you know, maybe she doesn't like Zachariah. He's not going to name her son after her husband. Or maybe people think Elizabeth's a little bit uppity. Maybe she's taking advantage of her deaf, mute husband. <laughs> so what do they do? They seek his opinion. They give him a tablet. And he writes his name, what? Verse 63, his name is John. He doesn't write his name shall be John, but his name already is John. See, Zechariah knew that the child had this name before he was even conceived. His name is John. And you know what's interesting? In giving the baby a name with no family connection, in giving the baby a name other than his own, Zechariah really is acknowledging that God is the source of this child. That's what he's doing. And he's basically saying, you know what? I have no rights to this child. He is dedicating him to God. And at this point, Zechariah's mouth is open, and he proclaims a great hymn of praise in verses 68 to 79. And you can, you can read that on your own. Incredible hymn of praise. Verses 68 to 75 contain what Zechariah should have said when Gabriel proclaimed the good news. He's had nine months to think about it. Can you imagine not saying a word for nine months? Zechariah had seen the first steps, the pregnancy of Elizabeth, the pregnancy of Mary, and the birth of John. And you know what? He's confident that God will complete the good work that he has begun. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That word translated visit does not mean what we do over the holidays with family and friends. That word visit means to exercise oversight over or, or behalf of, to visit with the intention of helping. How does God help his people? Well, he redeemed them. He bought them from slavery. He freed them. For centuries, God's plan of redemption has seemed to be on hold. Everybody's looking for the Messiah. There is none. Now God has brought about the key elements, laying the foundation for the birth of Christ. Notice once again the tense that Zechariah uses. Although the Messiah is not yet born, although redemption is still to come, Zechariah says, full of faith. He's so confident that God is going to work out his purposes that he speaks as if the plan is already accomplished. See, that's not a word of faith thing. That's a Bible thing. When you believe that God is going to answer your prayer based on his word, when God says something and he says he will do it, beloved, he will do it. 
Verse 69 says, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. A horn basically is a symbol of power. The specific phrase horn of salvation appears several times in the Old Testament. You can see it everywhere. In Psalm 18 is one example. Consider the second and last verse of, of that psalm. Psalm 18 Verse 2 and verse 50, it says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Verse 50 says this, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. See, Zechariah basically is summing this up and he's saying, You know what? You promised you would save your people through a descendant of David. Now you've done it. Why does Zechariah praise God? Well, not first for the, the private joy of giving him a son. I mean, obviously he was joyful about that, but that's not why he's praising God. Instead, he praises him for putting into effect God's plan of redemption. When he doesn't thank when he does thank God for a child, his primary praise is not for his own son, but for Mary's. See, Zachariah's long period of silence has borne fruit. He knows what is most important. Sometimes when we go before God, we just need to quiet our heart, beloved, and just shut up for a while and let God minister to us. I don't know if you're like me, but you know, when you go into the presence of God, I'm always looking for something in his word or praying about something. I feel like I gotta be doing something all the time. And so I'm always busy, busy, busy. And sometimes God says, will you just shut up and relax? Just stop what you're doing. I have something for you, but you're, you're missing it. You're too busy. I don't know if God actually said shut up, but something like that, be quiet. Be still. There you go. That's a good one. Verse 70, the end of this chapter here, notes that the coming of this Messiah is a fulfillment of age-old prophecies. Verses 71 to 73 detail the content of that prophecy. What did God promise? What is he now fulfilling? Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who what? Hate us both human enemies and spiritual enemies. And the idea carries over there to, to verse 72. To show mercy with our fathers. Probably a better translation of that is to show us mercy along with the mercy previously showed to our fathers. See, God is, is a God who has a plan, and he has a purpose, and he's going to carry that purpose and that plan out. Verses 73 to 75 give us the purpose of this salvation. Why is God doing all this? God has displayed his great and mercy and showed us his faithfulness. Why does he do this? So that we might worship him, so that we might live to his glory. that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all of our days. See, the purpose of our salvation, the purpose of deliverance, the, the reason God came up with this whole plan in the first place is that we might worship him. God saves us. He redeems us for his glory, not our own. God redeems us and he fulfills his covenant so that he might be magnified. And we magnify him when we live holy and righteous lives. Zechariah knew that he was preparing, his son would prepare a way, not by military force, to overthrow the Roman government, not by beginning some political movement that will unite the factions in his country, not by merely reforming society, by helping the poor and needy. I mean, all those things are okay, 
But instead of working these ways, John will prepare the way by helping people to see the forgiveness and the salvation that God offers through Christ. Christ himself will visit us with mercy, shining his light in our darkness, bringing us out of the frightening places, cleansing us from the deeds of darkness, guiding us in his path, his way, the way of peace with him. That's the only way. Well, what can we learn from Zechariah today? We can learn that the time is at hand and that it's given to us to believe the promise. The same God who planned all these events over the centuries for Jesus' first coming is planning all the events now for Jesus' second coming. I pray you're praying for that. Come thou long expected, Lord Jesus. Would you be surprised if God answered those prayers? It brings us back to the first four verses. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The Gospel of Luke gives us certainty. Luke compiles eyewitnesses, accounts of what God did in the first century. See, God's plan is sure. Whether you're on board or not, his plan is still going to go forward. His covenant is certain. His salvation is sure through Christ. He will fulfill his promise to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed. He will redeem those from every tribe and every tongue. And you know what? We have a role just like Zechariah. Jesus will return in power and great glory. The question is, do you believe? Father, we pray today as we close this service. We ask, Lord, that you would help our unbelief. Just like Zechariah was faced with some hard things to believe. God, you are a God who does not lie. And Lord, your word clearly says, your own son clearly said, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He didn't stutter. He didn't beat around the bush. He was very direct. And that directness is a way of being gracious. I feel that some of... Some hearts here today are struggling. They don't know what to believe. I pray, Lord, that you will help their unbelief, just like you helped Zechariah, that you assisted him, that you walked with him through his doubts, through even his pain and anguish at times, I'm sure. God, you're a God who loves us. You care for us. You desire to show us your grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. But Father, we have to be dependent on you. We can't be dependent on our own mind to figure this out. We can't be dependent on our own works. And hopefully one day, the good works will outweigh the bad. It doesn't work that way. We are utterly lost without your intervention. And Father, we pray that you would intervene in the hearts and lives represented here today who have yet to put their faith and trust in you. God, that you would do that miraculous work that needs to be done. And for us believers, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to the task that you've set before us to share with a lost and dying world the life-giving, gracious, loving gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. 
the name of Jesus, the Lord, the Creator, the one who died in our place, the one who became sin for us. We pray that we would take that message of hope and forgiveness to a lost and dying world, believing that you will work in people's hearts, that you will draw them to yourself. And Lord, what a better time to do that in the month of December with the Christmas season and we see how people are off track, they're off message. What a wonderful opportunity it is for us to bring them back on track, to not be shy about saying Merry Christmas and explaining why we're doing so, to do it in love, to do it graciously, to unveil the forgiveness of Christ to those who need it most. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen.